You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast. In this episode, United Nations peacekeeper deaths in Mali, Akriti talks to Lisa Sharland on why peacekeepers are targeted by violent groups. Just when you think the Huawei story was done, Danielle and Tom from our cyber team talk through the Huawei indictments and supply chain risk. But first up, pill testing at music festivals, I talked to Dr John Coyne, head of ASPE's Border Security Program, about Australia's strategy for illicit drugs and harm minimisation. Hi, John. Thanks for joining the podcast. Hi, Renate. Now, I've just read an advanced copy of a blog piece that you have coming out soon that looks at the emerging challenges of illicit drug supply in 2019. And I know that there are a lot of complexities in history um, that impacts how Australia combats illicit drugs. But I did want to start off with, I guess, what's been in the headlines recently, which is unfortunately the news that uh, there are five deaths at music festivals from drug overdose over the summer, um, which has obviously sparked quite a bit of public debate um, about Australia's zero drug use tolerance versus pill testing. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that issue. Um, look, right from the start, I'll say two things. So number one is me personally. I don't like the idea, I would never like the idea of either doing drugs myself or my children doing it. Having mm-hmm. said that, um, I think it's quite clear that the 1980s just say no to drugs doesn't work for everyone. Mm. Um, I think it's very, very interesting that similar to the early 1990s, people are sort of disconnected from the problem of drugs Mm. until it's personalised with people from what they consider good socioeconomic backgrounds. So in the case of heroin in the 1990s, we saw people weren't really concerned until we had the Prime Minister of the time, um, Bob Hawke, standing up and crying on national TV. All of a sudden it was a reality that, you know, drugs affect all of us. Yeah. I think the really fearful thing about the issue of music festivals is these aren't the worst of society. They're they're everyday average young Australians. And as Mm -hmm. a result of that, I look at what fundamentally underpins our national illicit drug strategy, which is harm minimisation. So from my perspective, I think pill testing is a must-have. You mentioned our illicit drug strategy. What is Australia's illicit drug strategy? You mentioned harm minimisation as one aspect, but, I mean, what are the other aspects of it? Um, yeah, look, it's a, for want of a better term, it's something in the past I've talked about. It's like a three-legged stool, three pieces to it. Mm-hmm. Um, supply reduction. So this is all the stuff that law enforcement do around intervening and catching drug dealers and major imports, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, demand reduction, which is the piece, again, we're probably not doing particularly well, which is reducing the demand among users today or the community today for drugs. Mm. And the third one, which is harm minimisation, which is incredibly important. And we've seen Australia take really some big leads in this. So, you know, these are your safe injecting room sites. So in the first mm. 10 years of the King's Cross safe injecting site, it managed, you know, somewhere in the vicinity of 6,000 uh, overdoses without a single casualty. So those that's 6,000 people, as an example, who would be dead otherwise if it wasn't for harm minimisation. Um, all of them are important and support each other. Mm. So what's the disconnect then between uh, pill testing at music festivals? Because it seems like it's a sensible part of an already existing strategy. So why isn't it happening and why is there such an uproar about it? Look, I think it has a a number of factors to it. I think that governments are are loathe to engage with anything that can be perceived as them supporting drug use or encouraging drug use. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as a result of that, we get this sort of zero tolerance. 
Um, in some ways, it's because we've lost, I guess, a connection with the fact that the national strategy is about harm minimisation and reducing drug harms. We're never yep. going to successfully beat it. Mm. Um, and the devil's in the details with this one. So implementing a successful, by that I mean a 100% successful pill testing outcome is incredibly difficult. Mm. Um, as an example, uh, and in terms of legal liability, as an example, a person can take a tablet that contains complete MDMA, so ecstasy, uh, and not have any other, any other commodities mixed in with it. And what can happen is they can still react badly to that and die from an overdose. What they, they're concerned about in this time is the government is giving this sort of view that they're giving a green light to drug taking. Uh, in contrast, I suspect that it's one of those issues that we, we need to to look to our um, wider community. And I think that's why a lot of NGOs have suggested that they take the responsibility to do it. Um, the ACT government last year at the Groove and the Moo Festival was the first and only jurisdiction in Australia to do so. They tested about 85, 86 samples, two of which contained lethal doses of mm. um, cutting agents. So they saved two lives. They did 86 tests. The feedback seems to be that some people who had their drugs tested, when they were handed a safety note of what the impacts and side effects of the drugs were, some threw them away, didn't take them after all, even though they were deemed um, to not contain foreign cutting agents. So it, it was a real success and there was no increase in demand. Outside mm. of that festival, the police continued doing what they always did and seizing drugs. So it was a good outcome. So I think it serves as a, as a really good case study for governments to explore further. Mm, interesting. And so you mentioned uh, that our strategy for reducing the supply of drugs is, is not something that is quite successful at the moment and there's areas to improve. What is the broader strategy for reducing that supply? Um, you know, it's underpinned by, in 1969, mm -hmm. there was an academic called Donald Cressy. Mm -hmm. On behalf of the US president, he went out and he did, I guess, a review and a study of organised crime. And he came back with this Study, which he had did exclusively on Costa Nistra, which is an Italian organised crime family. And he came back with this idea that organised crime was this structured hierarchy and by taking out the Mr Biggs, you could have an impact and the whole network would fall apart. Mm. Fast forward, and that's no longer the case in the 21st century, um, my argument and certainly the data from organisations like the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime is that the world is in a stage where we're in oversupply of um, illicit drugs, so cocaine and heroin. The prices over the long term have declined at wholesale levels. That means that drugs are actually cheaper than they've been before to buy wholesale. The production is increasing, no change in, in um, usage rates. And in fact, globally, we think it's sort of stabilised drug usage. Mm -hmm. So simply removing larger and larger quantities doesn't necessarily mean that we're changing the actual supply of drugs in the community and that taking out the Mr Bigs, they're so replaceable now that I don't think it's going to have the same impact. And what that means is we need to revolutionise our strategy and find new things to do. And we're not yet as a global law enforcement community doing that. Right. So your piece does touch on an alarming drug supply situation of synthetic drugs within the region. Why are we seeing such an increase of these drugs being produced? Look, first off, it's probably for people who aren't familiar with the drug trade. What we're talking about here is synthetic drugs. These are things that are made in laboratories. So cocaine comes from coca plant, heroin comes from the opium poppy. This stuff is cooked up by bringing a range of precursors together and it's mm -hmm. made in a lab. Mm -hmm. um, not processed, but manufactured. The reason is pretty simple. First off, as the global demand for heroin has stabilised 
and the increase in poppy agricultural production in Afghanistan has increased. The world is in an oversupply of cocaine, um, uh, cocaine and heroin. As a result of that, the Golden Triangle, Laos, Myanmar, what we've seen is many of the organised crime groups there move to the production of methamphetamines, or ice as we call it here. Now, they've not just moved to it in producing small amounts, and they've moved to it in producing industrial levels of these illicit drugs. Now, there's a couple of different impacts on that. Number one is that the region, Southeast Asia's drug users, have had a long association with using what they call yaba, which is a small amount of unrefined methamphetamine mixed with caffeine, mm -hmm. um, widely used across the region. All of a sudden now, we've seen that replaced with high levels of ice, um, methamphetamine. So they're having pure methamphetamine like we are here in Australia. It's increasingly creating um, problems across the region. We're seeing with the growth of the chemical and pharmaceutical industry in China, people in Laos and Myanmar, by people I mean criminal groups, have greater access to the precursors necessary to make these drugs. Third, the unpoliced zones of Myanmar have become safe zones from which criminal groups can operate mm. almost overtly in the production of drugs without any likelihood of um, being disrupted by police. And finally, what we're seeing is uh, impacts of investments and foreign investments in the region, um, and specifically the Chinese government's Belt and Road Initiative. We're seeing new levels of connectivity across the region, which means that these drug products can be moved and shifted across the region rather rapidly. Collectively, um, in a region where there's very few safety nets, um, what that means is that we're facing um, you know, a possible epidemic in terms mm. of usage rates, mental health problems across Southeast Asia in a region that's ill-prepared to, to respond to that. Now, the governments of the region haven't been unresponsive to this, but their point is this. They're seizing more drugs, so they're doing their bit to reduce supply. Yeah. But all in all, it's not having any impact at all on suppliers. They're just replacing that rapidly. So what we see is that the strategies we use to disrupt organised crimes groups operating out of um, Laos and Myanmar simply not having an impact on supply. Precursor, John, what do you mean by that? Um, a precursor is like the ingredients for the recipe of making a, a given drug. So in terms of, of methamphetamine or ice, there are a range of ingredients that go in. Some are easy to get hold of, some are more difficult to get hold of, so it's pseudoephedrine. So most people listening to the blog will know here in Australia, um, it's become incredibly difficult to get cold and flu tablets that contain pseudoephedrine. And the reason is criminal groups get it in order to manufacture methamphetamine. So when I'm talking about precursors, it's those sorts of things that go into the manufacturing mm -hmm. of synthetic drugs. Okay, so wrapping up, what is the message for Australian law enforcement for 2019? Unfortunately, the message is at the sort of top of the page or the headline is that the problem of drug supply is going to get worse and that our strategies um, in terms of disrupting especially the supply of drugs but more broadly even organised crime, their effectiveness is going to sink further and further and decline. Mm. Um, the underlying point of all of that and my message here is this. Number one is we need to find innovation and we need to look for new ways of thinking about organised crime and the mm. production of illicit drugs in our region. Number two is we have to engage with all three components of the national illicit drug strategy. And that means we really need to double down and look at demand reduction. And we need to have a look at policies like pill testing. Mm. Um, and we need to be very wary of the lessons learnt in other places like the US. 
a good example of that is is that uh, around 2014, 2015, the US government realised that they'd had a massive increase in prescription drugs in terms of um, opioids. Um, in a single year, the Drug Enforcement Agency made a decision to cut supply, legal supply, to opioids by 25%. It pushed a large population of people over into um, the illicit drug market and created a market which was rapidly exploited by Mexican organised crime groups. So mm -hmm. in all of this, the message is um, everything we have to do, we have to understand this is a people problem um, yep. and it's more than just arresting people and putting them in jail. Well, thank you for your time, John. Thank you very much. And just when you thought it was over, Huawei is back in the news. Danielle and Tom from our cyber team sit down to talk through the latest developments in the Chinese telecommunications company. So Tom, you and I came back to work really sort of quite quickly in the new year, didn't we? Um, yeah, it was terrible. Yeah, it was, it was depressing. Uh, but uh, we came back on board and we've had some really uh, big projects that we've been working on and new funding and all kinds of exciting topics that we plan for this year. Uh, we are sort of looking at a whole bunch of projects related to surveillance and smart cities, electoral and cyber-enabled foreign interference, which is a very hot and I think exciting and interesting topic. We have a very big information warfare project uh, on the horizon and some interesting new China projects in the pipeline. And I think that we came back into 2019 with this approach that the Huawei issue is over and we're moving on and we're going to talk about and work on a whole bunch of other things. But we were really, really wrong. And our sort of field remains dominated by what's going on with Huawei. So I thought you could kick us off and talk us through what's happening, these new indictments that came out this week and what struck you about them. Yeah, so since we last spoke on the podcast, there's been a sort of rolling wave of countries expressing concern about Huawei. And Yesterday, or was it the day before, there were two indictments that were unsealed in the States. And together they paint a picture of a company that will just do anything for commercial advantage and then lie about it to cover up afterwards. I particularly like the indictment that dealt with a smartphone testing robot called Tappy. Huawei corporately was asking their engineers who had limited access to Tappy to find out as much as they could and take photos and it reached a point that they sent an engineer specifically to the lab in the States, snuck him in there. He got kicked out when he was, he was found to be in there and then they snuck him in the next day and, and then they also took parts from the robot. And once they were discovered, Huawei then launched an internal, air quotes, investigation where they basically used the two employees as a scapegoat, despite the fact that they'd been directed by Huawei to try and steal that information. Uh, so for me, there's a kind of moral question about how do you, you know, what's the responsibility of government to deal with companies that are behaving that way. Someone yesterday said to me, well, don't all companies behave like that? Just look at the Royal Banking Commission. To me, the difference is that the bankers seem to have convinced themselves that they were doing the right thing. In the case of Huawei, they clearly knew that they were doing the wrong thing and were attempting to cover it up afterwards. So I think perhaps bankers and Huawei are on a spectrum where <laughs> Huawei is further to the right a bit worse. What I really liked about the indictments was it gets a lot of information out there that quite likely was previously classified and thought of as intelligence or at least held within governments and it just puts information and evidence out there that 
we can now say, okay, there are other, you know, there was already other concerns, I think, in the open source world. Um, there's the UK's experience with Huawei. There's the fact that Huawei was the key ICT provider of the African Union headquarters uh, that was reportedly hacked every night for five years between 2012 to 2017, which I think is, is a very concerning issue. There's a whole bunch of things, but this indictment actually gives us a lot more detail and both, I think, those in you know outside of government and the private sector to now make far more informed decisions about who they work with and who they might see as a high-risk vendor. And I think we need to see more of that, right? You and I have talked about this a lot, this idea that governments will say, just trust us, this company or this country or this issue is a national security risk, we are making these decisions. But I don't think that's good enough. And I like that this indictment sort of gave us a lot more evidence and painted a picture, and we can actually now use that evidence in all of our decision-making. Yeah, the US in particular has used indictments to put a lot of information onto the public record in a way that allows people to actually have an informed debate about what's going on. And to me, that's important because the public in democracies needs to be informed to be part of how society is shaped and how decisions get made. So I'd like to see more of that. There's been a relative wealth of information from the US. Very, very little is made public in Australia, and I think that's a shame. Yeah, and I think that needs to change. Yeah, I agree. One of the other things that struck me about the Huawei indictments is, and the whole Huawei story, is it's really shown that people are understanding that you can't just buy technology and blindly trust that it will do what you think it will do. Mm. So people are waking up to what's known as supply chain risk. Mm. And I think Huawei is the beginning of a long discussion about where we buy technology. Technology nowadays is so complex that you can't be assured that it will, or it's very hard to assure yourself that it'll only do what you think it will do and that it won't do something else. One example is Chinese cloud vendors. Is it a good idea for, for Australian companies to use vendors from other countries? And I noticed the ACSC, the Cybersecurity Centre, has basically recommended against it unless the information you're going to store is public in the first place. Mm. So that seems a sensible decision, but I think it'll move beyond cloud vendors to all sorts of technology. I relatively often now get asked, is it okay for me to buy a Huawei phone? And I think people individuals are starting to realise that there are all sorts of risks out there as well. I think we need a bit of a shift to this isn't about an individual company, whether Mm. that company be from China or or wherever. I think there needs to be far more focus on the origins of the technologies that we're all using and where in the world those technologies come from. And that means looking a lot more at the governments ruling those countries. So in, in this case, the Chinese Communist Party and the different policies and regulations and laws and behaviours internationally that are going on there and how that then impacts, you know, the technology and the systems that we invest in here. And I think that conversation is happening, but I think we're too much focused on Huawei as a company. To me, this is less about an individual company and more about the political systems in place. Yeah, so there's an alliance which is trying to set up, I guess, rules for the road. And one of their points is that technology companies shouldn't be used to, and I'm paraphrasing, to to poison the supply chain. 
And when I first saw that, I thought that that was exactly what governments need to agree to. You mean show more leadership on? Yeah, and I guess that the only way that that will happen is if governments agree that that's the right thing to do. So mm. what's at stake is basically global trade. It would be good if we could actually trade with products because of principle of comparative advantage, the good old economic principle that it's actually good to trade with other countries. But if we can't trust anyone, that's a real problem. But mm. how do you trust people? So I think that the Chinese government, basically policy to engage in wide-ranging espionage has been very tactically beneficial. They've gotten yeah. a lot of IP, but it really has over the longer term eroded trust. Yeah. That, that and now they, well, yeah, sorry, sorry to cut you off, but now they're companies are suffering some of the consequences yeah exactly yeah of that behavior and I think that's a real shame so let's finish off we get asked by the media every day is this the end for Huawei what do you think I think there'll be a block of countries that will continue to buy Huawei products because they'll, and I think rightly so, prioritise development over security. Yeah. It's very hard to have security as a priority if you don't have clean water, for example. And then I think there'll be a block of more developed countries that won't touch Huawei. Yeah, I think in Five Eyes countries and countries that prioritise and invest in security, I don't think they'll get a look in in terms of uh, national networks uh, and state networks as well. We're having that debate here in Australia. I think you're right. I think for developing countries, they still offer cost-effective, good products, and they've got good on-the-ground relationships. Often they get facilitated market access by the Chinese government's Exxon Bank loans. So they're sort of semi-development sort of development assistance program. So Papua New Guinea is a good example where US $200 million uh, was given uh, to build their NBN, but Huawei has to be the provider and I think that will continue around the world and that will give them a really great foothold uh, into a lot of markets. So I think things aren't over but you you actually said this to steal your words they're just going to become a different type of company. I think they'll be a different size of company. And that size is smaller? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> All right. Thanks Danielle. Thanks Tom. Finally, Akriti speaks with Lisa Sharland, head of ASPE's international program, about the recent United Nations peacekeeper deaths in Mali and the effectiveness of peacekeeping operations. Last week, we read a horrible news report about an attack on UN peacekeepers by an Al-Qaeda-linked terror group in Mali. I'm talking to Lisa Sharland, the head of the international program at ASPE, to know more about what happened. Lisa, why were the UN peacekeepers targeted? Thanks, Akriti. Look, it's it's a challenging situation with the, the UN peacekeeping mission in Mali. As you mentioned, uh, on the 20th of January in the Kadal region to the north, 10 Chadian peacekeepers were killed. There are another 25 people that were wounded. And it, it's certainly a significant attack for a UN peacekeeping mission, which is why it has garnered a bit of a bit of news attention. There have been some claims that they were targeted due to Chad's revival of diplomatic relations with, with Israel. Often we don't know, though, why UN peacekeepers get attacked. In fact, there was actually another recent attack on peacekeepers in the mission in Mali. Two Sri Lankan peacekeepers were killed, um, several others wounded. It's a challenge that peacekeeping missions are not just facing in Mali but across the board. As you are probably aware, the, the mission in Mali has a mandate there at the moment to focus on the implementation of the 2015 Agreement on Peace and Reconciliation. It's working to restore state authority. It has a protection of civilians mandate. But at the same time, there's active threats from terrorism and violent extremism. And in reality, the, the UN peacekeeping mission that's there, the, the military, the police and the civilian components aren't equipped to deal with that threat. 
And in fact, that UN peacekeeping mission because of that is operating alongside other counterterrorism missions with the French Bakan forces sure. and the G5 Sahel. So you have a lot of actors there at the moment operating in the region right. um, in a very volatile security environment. So I take it that UN peacekeepers are essentially soft targets for uh, violent groups and terror-based uh, organizations, especially in Africa. Does the UN have a preventative strategy to make peacekeeping safer? Safety and security, with, without a doubt, I think is front and center for the UN in, in terms of how it goes about reforming peacekeeping. It's a concern for countries that deploy personnel, of course, um, certainly countries like Australia and others, but across the board. It's a particularly challenging situation in Mali as well because a lot of the major contributors to that mission are actually under-equipped to be operating in that environment. So right. if you compare that, for instance, to NATO operations in Afghanistan where mm -hmm. there's been a lot of experience with improvised explosive devices, yeah. a number of the countries deployed in Mali don't have that experience and sure. so they're exposed more readily to some of the consequences of those attacks. The UN is doing a lot to try and address some of these gaps in fact, in 2017, the Secretary-General commissioned a report on the security of peacekeepers when he came to office. Yep. That report was undertaken by a retired force commander, Lieutenant General Dos Santos Cruz. Right. And basically what that report found, so it came out in December 2017, what it really found is that the, the blue helmet, you know, what's really iconic of UN peacekeepers, no longer offers natural protection to peacekeepers sure. anymore. And so the UN really needs to focus on how it can strengthen performance in missions, make sure that peacekeepers um, have the right mindsets to deploy. It found that there need to be an improved capacity of missions to operate in high threat environments. So there's a real focus now on making sure that the peacekeepers that are deployed can address some of these emerging threats that are in the environments that they're operating in. Right. In a recent paper, you've argued that peace operations are inherently linked or are, are an important mechanism for advancing the women peace and security agenda. Please tell us more about how they're linked. Absolutely. So peacekeeping mandates that are authorised by the Security Council. So I should state now there's 14 UN peacekeeping operations yeah. currently operating around the globe. They now routinely often have provisions related to women, peace and security. So, for example, they'll include provisions about the importance of having gender advisors in the missions, um, the importance of improving women's participation, whether it be in the political processes or as part of the security sector. Right. And a recent reform initiative that's been launched by the Secretary-General called Action for Peacekeeping, which has been agreed with member states and other partners on peacekeeping, sort of includes three basic provisions around women, peace and security. That is ensuring the full, equal and meaningful participation of women in all stages of peace processes. Second, systematically integrating a gender perspective into all stages of analysis, planning, implementation and reporting. And finally, increasing the number of civilian and uniformed women in peacekeeping at all levels and in key positions. So this is part of that reform gender but this is work that's been underway over the last nearly 20 years sure. since we had the adoption of Resolution 1325. Right. But we are seeing quite a bit of effort in that space and there's a long way to go. For example, the military components in UN peacekeeping are hovering around 4% when it right. comes to women. So there's a real concerted effort there to push that. And in fact, the Canadians have launched an initiative called the ELSI Initiative to try and look at what some of the barriers are to women deploying to UN peacekeeping missions so they right. can be overcome. But we do face pushback in a number of areas. And one really strong example, unfortunately, is, for instance, negotiations about the budgeting and deployment of gender advisors to sure. UN peacekeeping missions um, often comes under attack. Right. 
So there's a real need to catalyse that, that support for women, peace and security because it has been shown that they play a really pivotal role in terms of engaging with local communities, yep. in terms of improving operational effectiveness and also because effectively it's, it's the right thing to be doing to have more women engaged. Absolutely. My final question to, to you is, and this is something that um, I've been thinking about a lot lately, um, in an era of intense geopolitical rivalry, technological disruption and proliferation of transnational pro problems, how can multilateral peacekeeping operations be strengthened and be made more effective? That's a really good question. It's something <laughs> I'm constantly thinking about. In fact, I was at a conference in Stockholm in November, where the Challenges Forum that was hosted by the Folke Bernadotte Academy and the Swedish Armed Forces. And as you mentioned, I wrote a paper on women, peace yep. and security for that. And I was recently at a meeting in New York where we were talking about the findings from that conference. And a lot of that, the, the focus of that conference was on this current reform initiative, Action for Peacekeeping. Sure. And for anyone who's been engaged in UN peacekeeping over the last sort of 20 years or so, a number of the recommendations aren't necessarily new. We've been pushing for these reforms for a while. But I think what is critical about something like this is having the member state will and having the political leadership to say, we're committed to UN peacekeeping and we're going to put in place reforms to deliver on this. And I think that's sometimes where we, we have a gap. One of the things that UN peacekeeping really needs to focus on is particularly when we're looking at performance, you know, how do we have peacekeeping missions that are equipped for the 21st century challenges? Sure. A lot of people will say, well, we're operating in a 21st century environment with 20th century tools right. when it comes to UN peacekeeping. So there's been a lot of focus on technology. We now have unmanned aerial vehicles deploying to some missions. There's an increased focus on the use of intelligence and things. So there's slow reforms taking place. But I think really, at the end of the day, it's about knowing what the limits of UN peacekeeping are as a tool, right. because there are some environments where it shouldn't be deployed. It is really there to support a political process and a number of missions are operating in contexts where there isn't an active political process to support at the moment. Right. I think the point I'd conclude on really is one of the things that's being marked this year is that it's 20 years since the first UN peacekeeping mission was deployed to Sierra Leone in 1999 with the first protection of civilians mandate. Right. And I think when you consider the vulnerable populations mm -hmm. where peacekeepers are deployed and the way that people look to them for protection, it's really important that we make sure we energise those efforts to make sure that peacekeeping missions are focused on protecting the populations where they're deployed, meeting those expectations, because we know that the failures of the past continue to haunt peacekeeping. And I think right now, 20 years on, we need to make sure that peacekeeping can, can address that particular challenge because we know elsewhere in the world we're struggling to do it, whether it be Syria, Yemen or, or many other places. Clearly, there's a lot to think about and a lot to do in this regard. Thanks very much for your time, Lisa. It was great talking to you today. You're welcome. Thank you. That's all in this episode. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. We'll be back in two weeks.